establishing connection to Science Night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another episode of the Science Night podcast. My name is James, and with me tonight, we have two special guests for our special episode all about human evolution. With me tonight is Dr. Brianna Pobinar from the Smithsonian Institution. Hello. And also with me is Ryan McRae, a PhD candidate at George Washington University. Thank you. Great to be here. So what we're going to do in this part of the episode is talk about their article from the Public Library of Sciences, a recent article about the seven most interesting stories of human evolution found in 2021. So before we get into the stories and the big overall themes of things that were found in 2021, I have a couple questions on just the nuts and bolts of, of writing this. So you know, obviously, these aren't the only seven things that were found. How do we de- how do we decide that these were the seven noteworthy things? Because I, I noticed that you didn't cover my tweet from early October that said, hey, Neanderthals are really cool. We should talk about them. And uh, you were right not to include it. That's a That's a great question. The process question. So um, this is, I guess, my fourth year, fifth year, maybe writing this, um, writing a similar blog post and Ryan is my co-author for this year. And what I've done in the past is that I am the anonymous, maybe not now as anonymous person behind the social media accounts for the Smithsonian's Human Origins Program. So the first thing that I normally do when we start to write this is to go through all of the posts on the Smithsonian Human Origins Facebook page for the last year and really see what has resonated with people. That's kind of a first combing through to see what the really big stories have been. And then maybe Ryan, you could talk about your part in the process also with writing for our website. Yeah. So although I'm a PhD candidate at George Washington, I also write Um, science education updates for the Smithsonian uh, website and exhibit. So part of that is writing short blogs on what's hot in human origins, which can be any research topic that has some sort of broader scale relevance to the public. And I think what Brianna and I really tried to do with this article was to go a little bit with a loose theme we had about presenting discoveries from different countries around the world. So although most discoveries in human evolution happen in Africa, we really wanted to highlight new discoveries from other countries worldwide. Let's get into the actual article itself and talk about some of these discoveries. And what we're not going to do is go through each bullet point one by one. We will link to the article on our website so you can go and read the entire thing. But I want to talk about kind of the overarching themes that I, as a science communicator and podcast host found while reading over these seven different things. One of the things that really struck me as, as a common theme from this article was how interconnected the three kind of the three uh, more modern species of our ancestors uh, how much interaction they had. So those three being, I should, I should tell you what they are, uh, all, all from the genus Homo, but the Denisovans, the Neanderthals, 
and homo sapiens ourselves modern modern humans and there were a couple articles that really showed how this uh this eurasian and central asian area during the late pleistocene was was really like a happening place right there was all kinds of interactions between these three these three humans we can call them all humans uh you know why don't we talk a little bit about that I think I'll lob that one to Ryan as he was as he wrote that section of the article. But I, you know, I kept I, I was thinking like, well, Denise of a cave was like the hot happening spot in the Pleistocene. So yeah, we definitely call all three of these species humans, and it's actually interesting because Denisovans in particular don't have an official scientific name for what species they are, since most of what we have from them is only genetic material, most of it being from Denisova Cave in Siberia, um, scientists have kind of neglected to name a new species just because we don't know enough about them to be able to identify them in fossils. But these three species definitely interacted in multiple locations. We know that they were living everywhere from the Middle East, Neanderthals and humans in Europe, as well as Siberia and Denisovans probably into Eastern Asia. Our species, Homo sapiens, we know evolved in Africa. We believe that both Neanderthals and Denisovans actually evolved outside of Africa. So this intermixing probably occurred as our species migrated across the world. We're learning more every day about when and how and the extent to which these interactions happened, both in terms of finding remains at the same site, like Denise of the Cave, as well as looking in our own genome and the genomes of Neanderthals and Denisovans to see what little pieces of DNA from other species might have gotten passed down. And I think, you know, it trips people up sometimes to think about, well, if they were different species, how could they interbreed? Isn't the definition of a species that they are, you know, separate and, and can't interbreed and produce fertile offspring? And so really, we know, particularly when thinking about deep time in the fossil record, that speciation is a process. It's not a point in time. And during the early part of that process, there was a long, there were long periods of time in which two really similar species in the process of splitting could interbreed. And we even know in nature today that a lot of species that are good independent species, where their ranges overlap, will occasionally interbreed. The more we look, the more we find interbreeding in human evolutionary history. And I think that shouldn't be a surprise to us, actually. Often when I see stories where we're finding that Homo sapiens are interacting with other things. We're also kind of expanding the range of the Neanderthals. We're finding out a lot of things about our our most recent cousins uh, in the past couple years. I love Neanderthals. We're finally like recognizing that they have a very vibrant culture, that they were uh, very much into art and expression and that they were moving about too. They weren't just hunched over and killing mammoths. Yeah, I mean, certainly artistic depictions of Neanderthals through time have reflected, I think, some scientific understandings and maybe misunderstandings. But it is, like you said, it's really interesting to see that the more we learn about Neanderthals, the more we get glimpses like into their daily lives, their social activities, their, you know, who knows, their spiritual worlds. I mean, Neanderthals, mm. like modern humans, buried their dead, maybe occasionally with like symbolic objects and things like that. So they made art, they might have had other kinds of rituals. So it's yeah, they had kind of these fully flesh lives that we're trying to like, reconstruct pieces of. 
that kind of leads us into the other overarching uh, theme that I saw on this was the hominid need for abstract thought and expression. So we've obviously seen that in one of the article, one of the sections of the article about art. But I want to talk about the purposeful burial that we just mentioned. Uh, you know, we've there were three graves that were mentioned in this article, and I'm really happy that you included one of them that was kind of on the outside of what you would consider purposeful burial. If you were, you know, not thinking about what purposeful burial is, but I think it definitely fits within that category. So what we have is a 78,000 year old site of a homo sapiens, so so modern humans in Kenya, a 41,000 year old site of a Neanderthal grave in France, and an up to 335,000 year old, 335,000 to 236 is what we're saying, of of another really cool hominid, Homo naledi. Uh, if you want to hear more about that, you can find go to our previous episode where I talked to Dr. Jerry De Silva, who was very much involved with with Homo naledi when they were looking through the Rising Star Cave, and that was in South Africa. And what they really point to is that our idea of purposefully burying and caring for the dead is very, very old in our lineage, and not a Victorian. Uh, construct uh, by any means. So what can graves tell us? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I see Ryan pointing to me here. So, I mean, we've known since some of the earliest discoveries of Neanderthals that um, it's not only modern humans that bury our dead, that potentially have some kind of ritual, meaningful ceremony around interring people who have died. But the question about burial in Homo naledi is a really interesting one. So this is a species known from um, South Africa, from the Rising Star Cave system, as you mentioned, between about 236 and 335,000 years old. And there are more than 15 individuals in this really deep, dark, difficult to get to recess of this cave. And the main argument for whether they're buried or just purposefully placed there is how the heck else did they get there? <laughs> Why else would they would have gone to this, you know, place where the light doesn't go really far into this cave? I mean, so deep that a lot of the folks who found and, and uncovered the Homo naledi fossils were all small women because they were the ones that could fit in the rising star cave system through all of these twists and turns. And so I think there's a there's certainly a good argument that the fact that there are only fossils of Homo naledi in this deep, dark cavern, where it's pretty much impossible to get to today, is likely to mean that they were purposefully disposed of. Whether there was any kind of, I don't know, symbolic, spiritual, meaningful, ritual behavior behind that is a separate question. There haven't been grave goods found with them. Mm -hmm. Whether this was a case of people putting bodies someplace where they weren't going to be attracting predators or decomposing and smelling, you know, we, we may never know the answer to that. But it's really interesting that there are adults, there are juveniles. I mean, the, the new fossil that was found um, of a homo naledi was a four to six-year-old child. It doesn't seem like they just somehow fell in there. So it's really sure. intriguing. 
if you don't know the story of Homo Naledi, dear listener, I will link the Nova documentary about the discovery because it we could we could talk about it for an entire episode and it still wouldn't be as cool as just watching that video and seeing the sites and, and finding out about it. It's one of my favorite stories in all of science, but definitely in biological anthropology. It's really cool. Let's talk a little bit about art because we found a lot of art this year we focused on three stories and i love that we have a warty pig a giant kangaroo and a conch shell some of the oldest modern human cave art found in indonesia and also the oldest art in australia by aboriginal people was dated this year that was a painting of a giant kangaroo and then there was a conch shell from uh, a cave in France that was also dated this year to be 18,000 years old. I would love to talk about all of these for a long amount of time, but the the conch shell in France was really intriguing to me because it could be so many things, right? So, so why don't we talk about that part of the story? I really wanted to put this in this article. I study ancient human behavior, dietary behavior and what people ate, but I feel like Anytime we really find evidence where there's kind of hard evidence of actually what people did in the past to me is really exciting. And so the cool thing about this conch shell is that not only is there evidence of there is basically dots, these red dots found on the inside surface of the shell that look like fingerprints. So people were probably using ochre pigment that they had on their hands and they were holding the shell and they were blowing through it to make music. But the opening was broken, which was a little bit confusing. But looking around that opening, there are traces of wax or resin, which was probably the remains of adhesive used to basically put a mouthpiece on this shell in order to blow through it and make it into an instrument. To me, it's just like you could put all of these different lines of evidence together and thinking about 18,000 years ago, people like playing music from something in nature. I just I think that's so cool. It just seems very French, too, right? Like we're creating music with a conch shell in in France. I really loved reading about the Australian Aboriginal cave art just because cave painting to the Aboriginal people in Australia is really important uh, historically. And I like that there is some cooperation with the Aboriginal communities uh, as evidenced through this article, rather than just a misinterpretation because we're not including those communities, uh, which has happened many, many times in the past. I don't know if there's a lot more to say about that. I know there's a lot to say about it, but... <laughs> But I really like that article as well. It just, it gave me a little bit more hope that we're going to start including these people and maybe getting a more accurate picture of the past and the future. I think the um, move away from parachute science as it's, you know, now being called is really important. Yeah. And I think the last art example, the warty pig from Indonesia, for me, this was also really important to include is because there has traditionally been an interpretation that there was this explosion of creative behavior in modern humans in Europe starting yeah. about 50,000 years ago. And it was a very Eurocentric view of human creativity and development. And the fact that the oldest 
representational or figurative art is now from a cave in Indonesia outside of Europe, I think is important. The Eurocentrism topic is interesting, though, because it goes beyond art even. It goes to fossils as well. Mm -hmm. The first fossils were found in Europe, so people thought that humans evolved in Europe. And then that was disproven pretty quickly that humans and our ancestors evolved in Africa. But even so, some of those ideas still stick around with discoveries that are made to this day. So like you said, with the uh, Australian rock art, it's important to include these indigenous communities Mm -hmm. in this research so that we can better understand the history, both from a Eurocentric or American-centric perspective, as well as from their perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that also uh, folds in nicely with the next thing I saw, which was the idea of travel. So we have a really great portion of this article that was about footprints that were fossilized footprints that were uncovered this year. And I think what you're talking about really mixes in well with the footprints found in the White Sands area of New Mexico, which definitely pushes back the arrival of ancient Native Americans south of the last glacial maxim uh, to a point that fits more in line with the folk tradition of those people with their oral living history. And it is something that was, was very much not really taken into account historically. So it's easy to think like, oh, we found fossilized footprints in New Mexico. That's cool. They were really old. That's even cooler. But what is the actual impact of this? I mean, the actual impact is huge. Talking from the earliest days of colonialism in North and South America to where we are today, indigenous communities have been saying this entire time that their ancestors have lived on this land way longer than Europeans and later Americans believed. It started off with the Clovis culture, which is a stone tool industry that was found in North America around 10 to 13,000 years ago. It's been pushed back by other fossil finds as well as cultural finds, both in North and South America. And it keeps getting pushed back later and later. So I don't think we should be surprised to see it get pushed back even more. Mm -hmm. Scientists used to think that the migration into the Americas had to occur over what was called the Bering Land Bridge, this land bridge between Siberia and Alaska. Um, Other people have suggested that a sea route might have been possible, that uh, people used boats to cross along the coast. But either way, crossing during a glacial maximum is very unlikely. You don't want to walk over 10 to 20,000 miles of ice, no matter how used to it you might be. So these footprints that we see south of the glaciers around 20 to 26,000 years ago, it indicates that humans were there before the glacial maximum, pushing it back even further than the footprints age, uh, even older than the footprints are. So I don't think that we should be surprised if we keep pushing this date back further and further. It's just a matter of getting out there and finding new sites. Another thing it also definitely starts to shred is the theory that megafauna in North America were hunted to extinction. And there are, were a couple other ar- articles this year that destroy that idea. And what I, what I say when I mean megafauna are like the woolly mammoth and the cave bear and the smilodon and all of these really big things that should haunt our nightmares. But this evidence shows that, you know, that's probably not the case if they're interacting with each other for this long. And maybe we should look at other ideas. Definitely. So people love to blame modern humans for everything. And it's entirely possible still that it was our fault that all these (laughs) things went extinct. 
But the fact that modern humans were coexisting with them for an extended period of time, tens of thousands of years more, means that that is less likely than previously thought. If we think about indigenous communities in Africa, they've coexisted with what we can think of as modern day megafauna, giraffes and elephants and water buffalo this entire time. So the fact that humans can coexist with these animals is not very surprising because we see it today. What ended up causing their extinction? We aren't sure. Most likely it was some sort of climatic shift, a general warming of the climate that Mm -hmm. these large, very furry creatures just couldn't deal with as efficiently as humans or smaller animals could. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly, you know, we know that modern animals who are endangered or going extinct, there's usually a variety of different factors that are causing current extinctions. We certainly have some evidence of when modern humans get to islands in particular, that they can have a really big impact on the local animal communities. And there are some animals or birds that were certainly hunted to extinction. But I agree. I think the assumption that that as soon as modern humans or even earlier humans get to a particular area, that they're going to wipe out all of the large animals, that doesn't really seem to be the case the more that people are looking into this. Maybe that has to do with the fact that very modern humans, meaning post-industrial revolution humans, tend to do that. Uh, when we get to an area, we do tend to destroy everything. Um, and maybe we like to try to make ourselves feel a little bit better about that by thinking, oh, this is just so far in our DNA that it's always happened. Yeah, we we look through a modern cultural lens to the past a lot. Um, and I think, you know, as paleoanthropologists, we're, we're often having to remind ourselves of um, not using the present to always assume that that's what the past was like. If I can circle that back to the first thing we talked about, which was the other human species, Neanderthals and Denisovans, this leads right into our understanding of how they went extinct as well. One of the theories is that we either directly killed them or outcompeted them. But another theory is that there was more of a genetic assimilation, that our populations mixed and we they just got assimilated into our gene pool. Or like we think with these other megafauna in North and South America, that there was some sort of climatic shift that our species was better able to adapt to. I really love to think that it was just the genetic assimilation and we all just got real happy together. In all likelihood, it's probably a combination of everything, right? It's uh, and and it could be something that's way less dramatic of just maybe modern humans, you know, based on a slightly higher reproductive rate, just outcompeted Neanderthals. It doesn't have to be even anything. As Ryan was saying, it doesn't have to be direct competition. Mm-hmm. It may be just something more boring like that. Yeah, not everything has to be a movie, right? It that's sometimes right. it's just uh, uh, it happens. <laughs> There's another great story in this footprints section of the article, but I think I'm going to leave that to one of the authors from that article, Dr. Ellie McNutt, who will talk to you all about my favorite Paleolithic pathway in Lyotoli, Tanzania. Uh, so we'll have that conversation with her a little bit later, but I, I want to move on to another part that was a little bit more technical and maybe we'll be better science communicators if we do actually include this into this portion of the podcast, but it was kind of the concept of the micro and macro evolution, and then also the idea of these kind of chronological species too. So in your article, you talked specifically about Paranthropus robustus and some of the finds that show that maybe this isn't a different species. It's just showing 
the evolution within that species over a long amount of time. So how that species adapted, but still remained itself. And then also the idea of uh, homo longi uh, that was found this year and the entire conversation about Heidelbergensis and everything. And, you know, we'll do a very short version of that because that's a very, very active and ongoing conversation as well. Yeah. So to talk about the Paranthropus first, because like you said, the Homo longi and all of those, it's a very active and it's changing by the day. But Paranthropus, if our genus is Homo, we can think of the genus Paranthropus as being like the sister group to our own genus. They were this distinct group of human relatives that lived alongside some of the earliest members of our own genus. And what we see in Paranthropus robustus, which is the species of this genus from South Africa, is that the fossils that are significantly older from Dremelin Cave have these different morphological or physical features compared to the better known samples from a nearby cave called Swartkrans. And they're very sort of difficult to distinguish unless you look at individual traits rather than looking at the whole. So if we look at in particular the jaw and what we call the sagittal crest, which is a ridge of bone along the top of the skull, we can see that the way that these are shaped changes over time and that the earlier Paranthropus fossils, they have a less efficient bite force. Their jaw is differently positioned. Their sagittal crest is a little bit smaller. And then in the newer fossils, they have grown to be more efficient. These changes aren't large enough to warrant sort of separating these fossils into different species. Like in the article, we said a Tyrannosaurus rex and a saber-toothed cat would be very easily identified as different species. Because of that, because they're in the same place in different times and look very similar, this research team elected to call this an example of microevolution or smaller scale changes over time. And it's really cool that we can actually see this in the fossil record, because since we only get a very small snapshot of what happened in the past from fossils, usually all we can tell is macroevolution or these differences between species. So to get this sort of finer scale resolution, especially in our own lineage, is very exciting. And Ryan, why don't we quickly uh, talk about why having a more efficient bite and a larger sagittal crest would be really important to uh, Paranthropus robustus? Exactly. So one of the main distinguishing features of this group is that they have really, really large cheek teeth or molars, the teeth in the back of our mouth. And what we think they used them for was either to chew very hard objects or to chew soft objects a lot, similar to how a cow might chew grass all day long. If you're eating those kinds of things, it's very helpful to have an efficient bite force for whatever you happen to be eating. The more efficiently you can process those foods, the more of them you can eat and the less energy you have to spend overall. One of the biggest trends we see in evolution is conservation of energy. In modern humans, we have very big brains and somewhat weak bodies compared to our ancestors. And that's to conserve energy in our bodies in order to grow a bigger brain. Hmm. So this evolution of a more efficient bite force is something that we see over and over again. Let's get firmly into that muddle in, in the middle we have with Homo longi, Homo heidelbergensis. Uh, maybe we'll even throw in Homo erectus and, and all of that conversation. And that is uh, really, to me, as not a PhD candidate or PhD haver in <laughs> paleoanthropology, um, 
confusing at times, right? Like uh, we talk about, we, we, it, it can be very jargony um, when we talk about whether or not this is the beginning and end of a species. Where does that species change? How do we talk about uh, evolution when the fossil record is kind of spotty and we're making a lot of educated guesses, but still, you know, <laughs> at times maybe guesses. After a second, I'm going to pass this over to Ryan because he thinks a lot more about these questions than I do. Um, but I will, I will often like, as an analogy, I will often think about like, if you have a puzzle and you're missing three quarters of the pieces, you're not necessarily going to paint a full picture of what the past was actually like. And you may have, particular interpretations. And then if you get more puzzle pieces, you sort of understand how the parts fit together a little bit differently. But I, it's interesting because I think, you know, whether it's jargony or not, these are actually really deep questions in human evolution mm. studies and figuring out where you draw the line around variation that is in a single species is, I mean, this is why there are, there will always be discussions and debates about whether fossils fall into one species or another. Definitely. So like Brianna said, these are questions that I think about all the time. And my dissertation is on how we can better identify species from this sort of incomplete fossil record that we're presented with. So sometimes we have very unique species like Neanderthals, a unique suite of features that we see in different individuals across space and time so that we can fairly easily attribute fossils to that species. Other ones like ourselves, modern humans, have what we might consider a golden trait or a golden character. Only modern humans have a bony chin. No other fossil of human relative that we know has a bony chin like we do. So if you have a jawbone, you can say, oh yeah, that's a modern human, or it might be something else. When it comes to, as you termed it, this muddle in the middle, it gets a bit more complicated. We talked about humans, Neanderthals, Denisovans interacting during this time period. And this is kind of during and right before that, where we have fossils from Africa, Europe, Middle East, East Asia, that we aren't really sure what species they belong to, or if they're just different populations of the same species. You mentioned Homo erectus as well. Part of this might be a, an artifact of Homo erectus being such a widespread species that evolved and changed form on its own in different places in different times. It could also be speciation of a group more closely related to our own, like the group that gave rise to Neanderthals, Denisovans, and ourselves. So when we think about these fossils from East Asia, like the Homo longi cranium, fossils from Israel, um, from Nesharamla, Sometimes we can attribute those to new species. Sometimes, like in the case of the Israel fossils, we don't say they're new species and just describe them instead. How we treat these finds differs depending on what research team you are and on how you kind of consider these questions of what is a species. That's a question that's hotly debated even within the discipline. You know, we talked about Paranthropus uh, robustus, and there's lots of debate whether Paranthropus is even a legitimate uh, genus, and whether or not it should be in uh, Australopithecus too. You know, it's 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 a question that is spiritedly debated <laughs> within anthropology. So the last thing that I want to talk about in regards to this article, you know, you you wrote an article about research that was conducted in the midst of a worldwide 
pandemic. And sometimes the researchers had to get kind of creative when they were looking for material to research. And we've covered stories on the podcast before about things found in a fridge that led to a discovery. And there's plenty, plenty of that in this article throughout this year too. So I think it's just interesting about the kind of the, the spirit of the researcher who, even though they have to look elsewhere rather than the pristine uh, fossil fields of, of East Africa, the research is still happening. I'm a paleontologist who loves doing field work. There's nothing as fun as, you know, going out and digging up, finding fossils that no one else has seen before. So I, you know, I relate to that very strongly. On the other hand, I'm a museum professional, and I know that there is just a wealth of discoveries. And so I really enjoyed that some of the finds in this um, art in the article that we wrote were, oh, this conch shell that was discovered, by the way, in 1931, um, or the Neanderthal child burial that, you know, was actually excavated in the 1970s. It is really important with new questions, with new techniques to go back to current collections and basically kind of rediscover and reanalyze things. And so I, I'm always um, a fan of these kinds of stories. Science is, or at least when it's done well, uh, the rewriting of the information that other people have found and was the most correct version of that at the time. But we've seen in this article and in some of the talks we, uh, some of the things we've talked about today where if you look at it a different way, you might find something new. If you find a new specimen to more fully enrich the fossil record, maybe we figure something out new. Um, you know, we're going to talk to Ellie McNutt about footprints that were uncovered by Mary Leakey and how they reinterpreted that and found out something really, really cool about it. And it just shows you that science is never settled, right? It is always, like I say, when it's done right. It is ongoing and becoming more enriched. And I think to scientists, that's the most exciting part. I think for um, folks who aren't as comfortable and familiar with the scientific process, it can feel really unsettling. But really, to those of us, we're like, no, but we want to find those new things. We want to go back and look at those collections. We want to. It's not so much of an overturning everything we always, you know, that we thought we knew about human evolution, but it's it's like adding another branch onto the family tree. It's shifting a date back or a little bit further. It's, you know, clarifying what we knew or, oh, we didn't know that Neanderthal exhibited this behavior so it's really just it's fleshing out the story is the uh, ability to have uh, lots of spirited debate around your field of study something that is required to be a paleoanthropologist because um, boy is that the kind of the name of the game right <laughs> I think there's a lot of insider jokes in paleoanthropology about that, whether it's like the ratio of the number of fossils to the number of people that study them, or whether it's the joke that paleoanthropologists are the only scientists that stab each other. And um, the you know newer generations of paleoanthropologists are forming really collaborative teams, asking really interdisciplinary questions, and really you know, Lee Berger particularly is a great pioneer of kind of open science. But I think the more that we collaborate with each other, even if there are sort of rival or competing teams, I think we are in a better position 
these days with folks who are more able to have sort of respectful spirited debates with each other rather than like personal attacks. And do you think that has to do with paleoanthropology becoming a little bit more interdisciplinary uh, as far as bringing in other disciplines to help with technology, to help with, you know, mathematical modeling, to really have more different eyes looking at these problems? So yeah, yeah, I think you're getting at it with the different, I think diversity is helping. I think that paleoanthropology is less, I will say it, of a like, you know, like sort of white male-led science where it's like, you know, the the um, traditional um, alpha male leaders of projects who are the ones that are sort of in control of everything. I think the, I think new techniques, new questions, um, folks who are really good with um, statistical analyses, you know, we all work together in teams. And I think people bring lots of things to the table that were that, you know, it's not, it's not a one person show anymore. Um, And it's great. It's a lot more fun, frankly, to do it this way. And if I can say the other side of that beyond interdisciplinary communication and research among scientists is openness and communication with the public as well, especially when it comes to the science of human evolution. It's not something that can be kept behind closed doors because it's relevant to everyone. So I think that those research teams that are very open and have good science communicators, like you mentioned, Lee Berger's team, they're the ones we hear about because they're the ones that can share their story. Uh, the last thing. I want to mention, and it didn't happen in 2021, it happened just very recently, but I think if we're going to have a talk about human evolution, paleoanthropology, biological anthropology, uh, the Leakey family is something that is the kind of the first family when we talk about that. And we just recently lost uh, Richard Richard Leakey. Uh, he, he died just a few days ago as of this recording. So we're recording this on the 4th and he died uh, two days ago on the 2nd. Uh, he is the son of Mary and, and Louis Leakey. Um, and he has done a lot to kind of push this discipline forward. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. My my research generally te- takes place in Africa, although not exclusively. And I can't think of probably a single paleoanthropologist whose, you know, either career or just inspiration for going into the field wasn't somehow touched by, um, if not Richard Leakey, certainly, you know, members of his family. So it's a, it's mm-hmm. a real loss. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a great talk about some of the most noteworthy discoveries in human evolution in 2021. We will link to that article on our website, but what we're going to do now is go to a quick commercial break. And then when we come back, we'll talk more about the Liatoli trackway and my conversation with Dr. Ellie McNutt. hear me do you smell the foul corruption things get a little strange here and what about me like really strange grotesque stench of rotten flesh yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast i'm only just starting just search and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello come here and welcome to pulp from beyond the veil (laughs) 
Welcome back to Science Night. We have the Assistant Professor of Instruction in Biomedical Sciences at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, Dr. Ellie McNutt. Or should I say Dr. Ellison James McNutt? It's not James. Yeah, I mean, you know. It's Jeanette. Gotta, gotta try. <laughs> You're back. Hello. We've talked to you before. We're not gonna we're not gonna do like other podcasts and be like, hey, tell me everything about how you've gotten to this point. Because if they wanna do that, they can go back and listen to episode number nine way back in the first season of this podcast. And they can hear all about how you navigated your way to your position within the world of anatomy and biological anthropology. They can hear all about your work with that other guy at Dartmouth. I don't even know his name. I don't know. But what we're talking about today is your first author publication in the journal Nature. And we're kind of re-looking at the footprints of my favorite Paleolithic pathway. That is the Liatoli Trackway. Specifically, like my favorite of the favorite pathways, because this is the one that the Mary Leakey uncovered initially, right? This is first. Yep. This is exciting. Yep. This yep, yep. is like super exciting. And you got to work with Charles Musiba, another person who I deeply admire and love listening to because he's like one of the smartest and most charismatic people you'll ever meet it's on fabulous. this earth. Yeah. Uh, the the number two I'm talking to right now. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was that other guy from Dartmouth. Um, he was there, I guess. Um, <laughs> poor Jerry. <laughs> poor Jerry. Not poor Jerry. He just wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> but I want you to tell me what you found. So we all know the story, and if you don't know the story, I will probably have told it somewhere oh you can you can listen to episode two where i talk about mary leakey if you don't know the story of the liatoli pathway this is all synergy this is like the very corporate america we're we're doing a good thing here <laughs> but i've i've taken up way too much time and i want to tell i want you to tell me the story not not the article but the story of how you got involved with this and what you found yeah. in east africa Sure. So this this all got kind of prompted by the work that I was doing for my dissertation. So I am broadly interested in understanding the evolution of human locomotion. Why do we walk the way we do? We walk upright on two legs. We're bipedal. This is a strange way of moving through the world. Kind of we're we're kind of one of the only certainly mammals who walk on two legs all the time. Um, and so like the only other things that do that really are kangaroos, clearly moving through the world very differently from us, or things like birds who are not mammals who are going to come down and walk on the ground when they're, when they're on the ground on two legs, but then mostly they fly. So strange way of moving through the world. We're still unsure a lot of ways about why that happened, where that started, kind of what circumstances. So that's what I'm really interested in for my work. And part of that is I was working on trying to understand some of the postures of our feet that precede that. So what do you what do you need to set the stage to stand up and walk on two legs? And one of the things is you have to be a good plantigrade animal. That's just the fancy word for being a good heel striking animal. So humans 
hit the ground, hit with our heels, the rest of our feet go, whereas something like a cat or a dog is digitigrade. They're up on their toes and their heels never make contact with the ground. And so you ask your cat or dog to stand upright on two legs, their balance is really poor. And that's true for a lot of their anatomies, but one of them is about the way that their feet are. So if we can figure out who's a good plantigrade animal, because not all primates are, we might be able to be a little more circumspect in our in our fossil record and say, okay, well, these are the animals that are plantigrade sort of setting that stage. Where are they on the on trees? Are they on the ground? Things like that help us make that big question a little bit smaller. I guess I have to ask the question, like, what what are the good plantigrade animals, right? What, what are they? <laughs> well, so... So folks that are alive today in terms of our relatives, these are going to be the living apes. So um, chimpanzees, these are gorillas. Interestingly, um, gibbons are sort of semi-plantigrade. They sort of hit with the middle of their foot and the heel comes down. So they're not quite doing what we're doing. And then the living uh, monkeys are not. They're semi-digitigrade. So they're hitting with their toes. They're hitting with the fronts of their feet, but their heels are raised up off the ground. And so we're trying to look through the fossil record and kind of see like where... Where does that show up? And there are a couple animals. Um, sort of our fossil record doesn't have a complete range of feet for everybody present. That's what I was kind of working on is how you tell from your skeleton whether or not you're plantigrade. And then can you use that to understand the fossil record? And then how do you know that this thing about a bone tells you something about this kind of locomotion? Well, obviously, we look at closely related animals, other primates. But we also want to look at distantly related animals. We're not conflating relatedness with with what it means so something like a bear so bears are big they climb a lot and they're plantigrade animals and so the shapes of their bones and what they have in common with the living apes can kind of tell us these things are telling you about motion as opposed to phylogeny as opposed to relationships between animals and so i was looking at bears because i wanted to look at their skeletons and use them for this comparative anatomy and so i was kind of in the bear world of things and then this old research from the 1970s came up. And so it's talking about this trackway at Laetoli. It's called trackway A. It was originally discovered in 1976. Um, it's a set of five footprints. And they're they're strange. They kind of don't match up with what we see at the much more famous trackway G. That's got a set of over 30 prints, I believe. And that's usually attributed to Australopithecus afarensis. That's the same species as Lucy. And then in 2016, they published on another bipedal trackway, that's trackway S. And that has a lot of things in common with G and most folks also think that belongs to afarensis. But when they found G two years after they'd found A, G matched really nicely with the anatomies they'd seen in afarensis. And they, there was a lot more of them. They were out clear and they sort of became the star of the show. And because at the time, certainly with the fossil record that was available to the folks in the 1970s, they didn't know that there were that many species walking around at the same time, the sort of prevailing thought in the field was there really was only one species at a time. And so afarensis was kind of it. And they didn't know that there was such a diversity in ways of moving. So they're like, okay, I have a foot that matches nicely with the skeletal anatomy that I have preserved in the fossil record. And then I have these other five prints that don't. So they came up with what was a pretty reasonable um, hypothesis at the time. They're like, okay, what else could be an answer? And they were like, well, bears. And I know sometimes folks like Bears in Africa, I don't understand. It's like, well, if they were bears, they did exist in Eastern Africa about this age. And they were quite large bears, but they've now gone extinct. So they're like, okay, well, bears can stand up and walk on two legs. And when they do, it's pretty compelling, right? Sometimes if you've ever seen a bear stand up and walk on two legs, you're like, is that a man in a bear suit? You kind of have this moment. And so... 
they have some things in common when they when they stand up or at least they compellingly look like that so like all right well maybe maybe it's a bear and then even in that was very much couched in a sort of like bear question mark kind of moment but because G was so much easier to study, more involved with the fossils, and I could go between them. That sort of definitely became the star. And then they kind of left them alone for 40 years, and no one really thought about them again, didn't really bring them up. And so when I was looking at bear stuff and this came up, I went, really? I don't know. I kind of had I had a moment of like, I'm not sure I buy that it's a juvenile bear walking alone in this place, which they hadn't found bear fossils then. And 40 years on, they still hadn't found any bear fossils at the site. Um, and there are, there are, it's possible to have a, something like this. We have a field of footprints fossils and you may have animals represented that you don't have their skeleton, but usually those are birds. So bird flies into a place, walks on the ground, leaves its footprints, flies away. You may not end up with them in your fossil assemblage, but that at least has a good explanation. There isn't a good explanation for why you would have bear footprints but no pieces of bears anywhere in the fossil record so that was sort of one of the things that was like hmm i'm not sure that i buy this and then i also had the the benefit of especially the last 20 years of our fossil record has changed so so considerably um that i was like well okay i know that there are other kinds of feet even in that time frame things like the bertelli foot that exist and so having a diversity of hominin species and ways of moving through the world Things like Australopithecus sediba in South Africa show us that not every hominin is kind of walking in the same way. Sort of had that kind of predisposed to be like, well, maybe maybe we should go back and look at these and test some of these assumptions that were very much kind of left as open questions when this was first found. And so I went down to my advisor, who we keep joking about. That was Dr. Jeremy De Silva when I was at Dartmouth and said, you know, I'm, I'm curious about these. We have this cool opportunity because down the road from us is one of the world's best uh, American black bear sanctuaries. And that's the Killam Bear Center run by Dr. Ben Killam. And one of the things that sanctuary does is take in orphan black bears. And so we had this opportunity to work with little juvenile black bears that are about the size of the prints that were made at Laetoli A and have them walk through mud, <laughs> which was very cute because we, we gave them either applesauce or maple syrup as their reward at the end of that, <laughs> um, which is quite fabulous. And sort of look at their footprints. What do bear footprints when they're asked to walk independently upright look like? And do they match up? And, you know, kind of that. And then... When we started that work, we see that they don't. And so that sort of then prompted, okay, so what else do we need to do? We need to look at a larger comparative sample. So that brought in some more of these folks that are involved in the team of like, let's look at chimps, let's look at other fossils. And then we really wanted to look at the originals of Laetoli A, but unfortunately, at least as we were trying to find them, there doesn't appear to be any surviving casts from the original excavation. They certainly were made, but um, but we couldn't track any down. And we started to see that there were some, some folks who'd said that they didn't think that those had been fully excavated at the time anyway. And so we were really concerned that they'd been perhaps destroyed if those if they hadn't been reburied that maybe you know 40 years of seasonal rains that was a serious chance they could have no longer exist and so that's one of the reasons we teamed up with dr charles Masiba, who as you have just discussed is a fabulous human and he's one of the main researchers at laetoli he often leads field studies there and sort of said we have a compelling reason to go back try and find these see how they're preserved and and can we excavate them fully and try and match them up with what we have now in terms of data on bears and so and send my wild bears because the work that was originally done was looking at circus bears and any kind of activity and captivity stuff like being in a circus being in a zoo can change the the way that an animal moves just because they're 
can find and things like that. So working with these little bears who are wild and going to be released back into the wild kind of gives us a better snapshot of what actual wild bear behavior looks like. That kind of prompted going back to the field and finding those and finishing that excavation. We found a couple pieces of anatomy, critically things like the impression for the second digit and stuff that helped us kind of answer some of those those hanging questions about like, are you a bear? How do we prove that this is this is the left foot of a hominin and not the right foot of a bear in terms of their proportions of their toes and things like that. So that second digit helped make that possible. And then once you know for sure that it's a hominin, because it's got this interesting cross-stepping and we can talk more about that, that it's got to have these anatomies in its hip and its knee to sustain that balance. Well then, okay, are you an afarensis? Because that's what seems to be making G and S. And then we went through analyses to look at foot proportions, how the actual footprints are made, and found that it really doesn't line up with what we see in afarensis. And sort of the, the cool takeaway then is we have another hominin species existing at the same time at Laetoli. And it's sort of an unequivocal moment that they're hanging out together because mm-hmm. fossil footprints are different from our, our typical fossil assemblages. We have several areas, Eastern and Southern Africa, where we have multiple species of hominin who've been found at a particular site. But the nature of our fossil record, those cover pretty large time scales. So that's pretty swat, you know, so we don't know for sure that they existed there at exactly the same time. But the way that fossil footprints are made is that these are short time scales. We're talking like hours, days, tops. And so if they're in the same trackway of mud, which we know that they are, they could have looked across the landscape and seen one another. And that's a pretty fabulous and weird thing to imagine since we are kind of now the only hominins left alive to kind of think that we had cousins that we could have just like seen walking across across the landscape. So that's what makes this a particularly cool area is this sort of very old unequivocal moment where two of them are hanging out together. So you're blowing my mind here. <laughs> you, you've set up... You've set up the picture that I know of this uh, mushy, mushy lava ash that <laughs> things walk through. And then, as I've always been told, a bear walks through because that's always been part of the story. Potentially a bear walks through. Um, and everyone was just like, I, it's best, the best we got at the time. So we're going to go with that for now. Even though your co-conspirators like Charles Musiba, who was like a bear. A bear. <laughs> I've heard him say that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and the thing is, it was, and and it, you know, folks in the seventies even were very much bear unsatisfied yeah. in that, but but sort of bear till otherwise proven, and sure. but then no one no one went back and actually did that, and that was really important because Mary Leakey, her original thing was hominin, sure question mark, and you know, but. But then they were sort of, oh, this doesn't this doesn't fit with what we know. And that's the magic of science is that we we collaborate. We go, OK, I now know more 40 years on and can go back and check this. And then I'm sure I will do other work at some point that somebody 40 years from now will go. I know more now and let's go relook at this thing. And it so often is a bear, right? If you go back to and listen to my hit presentation, The Anthropology of Cryptozoology, uh, colon, it's probably a bear. It's often a bear when we talk about these like living things that we're trying to explain. So I can see where we can be like, oh, it's probably a bear. We're so used to saying that. Well, that's the exact one. Like the folks are like, I think I found f- footprints that are from Bigfoot. It's a bear. And that's that's why in the 70s when they're like, well, what could it be? It's like. 
it could be a bear. Like bears have, especially because they don't always, when they put footprints down, they don't always leave claws. So you kind of imagine like if there's a big claw mark that, that of course, you know, it's not a hominin, but particularly, and obviously this is bear back feet because the way front feet, you know, if you ever look up bear prints, you're like, how did anyone get that wrong? It's usually showing you a, a front paw. Um, so it's, you got to look at the imprints from the back paw and you see they do very much have sort of the same overall kind of shape. Their, their proportions aren't quite the same, but you can see why people are like, well, maybe. And can we, so, so we're, we're at the point where we're, we're ready to, to rediscover this and we're opening up uh, trackway a and you know we know now that it's not in the best shape preservation of these prints is particularly difficult in a way that it isn't difficult for something like a fossil right so you find lucy out in the world take her out of the ground and return her to a museum and you can keep her safe in the right kind of conditions and that's a fabulous way of protecting those heritage moments something like a fossil footprint they're really difficult to move because probably the nature of grabbing them out of the ground to try and take them somewhere else will almost assuredly damage, if not completely destroy them. This is one of the big concerns, particularly of my, my co-author, Charles Masiba, like how do you protect them and keep them both safe in situ and available for study and to know things. There have been sort of some attempts at that, and I, I believe it's part of Trackway G that you're remembering that they, well, okay, we're going to try and put in um, some of the sediment. I think, and I, I'm, I don't have the full details of this, they may have brought stuff in from elsewhere. It ended up having like plant seeds in it. And so those plant seeds started to grow plants, as they often do. And that began damaging the prints underneath. And, and they've tried some chemical protectants, I think, which also kind of had ill effects. That hasn't been done over the whole thing. It's a struggle of like, how much futzing do you do with them? <laughs> Because, like, I, you know, what am I going to sure, do? Sure. And I don't know if this, you know, this works for now, but in 30 years it's going to have this consequence. And it's it's difficult to know. It's one of the things that people are thinking about, like, how do we protect these these sites? What we ended up doing after we found A and, and finished our excavation was using the same sediments from around there. So they're already kind of in this area. They're not probably contaminated with too much external stuff and reburying them underneath that and then marking those sites well. The other thing that we did um, that technology allows us to do now, they couldn't do in the 70s, we did not only very intentional photogrammetry, so we sort of made the photography from the 1970s work to make a, a photogrammetric uh, model, but they weren't, you have to take those at the same type of day and from particular angles, and you need lots of them if you're going to build a really nice, com complete and, and accurate 3D model from that. So we did that now. So the, the A prints have been preserved in that way, and we also took a 3D scanner and actually scanned sure. the site. Both of those are available on Morphosource, which is a, a 3D sort of hosting site for both teaching and, and research purposes. So the kind of sum of the hope of those is A, just to preserve them in the event of something catastrophic, but B, also like, okay, what, what do you want to do if what you want to do is just look at them or take measurements? You could take those off those 3D models and we don't have to bury and unbury over and over again. Anytime you mess with them, even if that's what's necessary for the science, you sort of run a little risk of, of damage to them. So those kinds of preservation techniques are important for keeping these things around. I can see where that'd be very useful now that we have it is the digital archiving of these images. To be clear to our listeners that uh, photogrammetry is creating these 3D models by taking physical photographs yes. of something. Stitching together digital photography. So but different than 3D scanning, yes. correct? Yes. Yeah. 
So just to just to be clear to all our miniature scientists that are out there listening, you can go out and get your camera and take a thousand photographs of something, and maybe it'll be maybe it'll be cool. You actually, there are I haven't played with them too much, but there are apps certainly you know iPhones, Android things like that, which will let you stitch together um, things if you want to oh, have wow. your sort of a quick photogrammetry, varying degrees of how, how good those models are. You've got to take lots of photos usually if you want good overlap but yeah there you can play with those you can build models of various things in your life can tell you that the available photogrammetry of the liatoli trackway has led to the availability to just 3d print pathways i've been able to see and it's so cool i i love that this is also open source it seems like that is the new trend in paleoanthropology science is is a collaborative effort and there are going to be people who disagree in all or in part of of what we said in our paper and we welcome that that is part of the nature of that and one of the things we wanted to make it really easy is if if you disagree if you have a different idea if you have a kind of an explanation for how these look like that we want those resources to be available to the larger scientific community and as educational tools to say go ahead we want you to test those ideas and have the opportunity to do so because we're certainly we're not afraid of that i want to know you know if somebody has a great idea sees something that that i don't see um, and can show that in a, in a scientifically meaningful way. That's fabulous. That's that's how the field keeps going. There is a, a big push in general, I hope, for our field. And that's certainly something I, I believe in, that it should be easy for folks to access. Because that's that's how science works, is by building off of what other folks have done and, and being able to say, okay, I looked at this again with these things in mind. And maybe maybe you missed this, or I have this other idea, or whatever, and, and, and allow that to continue. And that's really important, particularly in a field where we have, you know, where it, it's stuff like fossils. You know, when I first had this paper come out, I was watching things on Twitter, and uh, he was like, I'm not sure if he was a high school teacher, I think it was, said, I'm, you know, has a 3D printer, and said, I'm going to print one of these out and, and show it to my class tomorrow. And that ability to have, like, here's new science happening right now, getting out to be part of education so fast is also a fabulous trend that I hope continues because that's that's the goal, right? Is to sort of share the, the forefront of wherever we are as quickly as possible. Yeah. And it's great for science communicators. As 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 not a scientist, but a science communicator, I can tell you this is this is so cool <laughs> that you can do stuff like this now. Uh instead of just like a random carousel of slides. Uh <laughs> so so I personally appreciate that mm -hmm. and i want to get back we've taken a little bit of a detour to explain the 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 kind of situation at liatoli mm -hmm. right uh and and we've said that it is probably not a bear even though i've said on this podcast that i think it was a bear i'm gonna go back and, wrong. <laughs> and say that i'm wrong as as a good science communicator i can tell you that's part of science is is admitting when you're wrong not being wrong because we're all wrong all the time it's saying I'm wrong because the evidence has told me this. Yes. So the next thing I could think of mm -hmm. if I'm putting my baby paleoanthropologist hat on is that it would be another, another afarensis yeah. is, is what I would think. Yeah. And that is a perfectly reasonable hypothesis that was, you know, we didn't go into this necessarily saying that's absolutely not belonging to afarensis. It does look 
Interesting. So the so if you kind of certainly our paper has has a little back to back of comparing some of the a G print with the best preserved A print and their size match together. And if you just look at them, they have very different proportions. The A print is a lot wider uh, in general. It has a little bit more of a, an abducted big toe, a big toe that sticks out a little bit, though certainly nothing as extreme as something like a chimpanzee. And so okay, it's a it's a good idea of like, okay, how do you know for sure that that doesn't belong to an afrensis? And there are a couple things about them that help us get to that. And the, one of them is how animals grow. So if we look at ontogeny and you look at the way your sort of foot width and foot length change together over over the course of your aging, there is a trajectory, a line for that. And we can see what that looks like in modern humans. We can see what that looks like in fossil groups of humans. So we looked at um, fossil footprints from a site called the Ngaro Serra, which is awesome, Tanzania. This is a made in a very similar circumstance, volcanic explosion, left a bunch of mud that then a, a thousand people, walk, a thousand footprints are left in. Um, there's a bunch there, but they're all from anatomically modern humans, but they're about 19,000 years old. We can look at chimpanzees because young chimpanzees to old, same, they may have a different line between them, but there is a line of like when you're young to when you're old. And then we look at the aprons, which are fairly tiny. And so their stature estimates is that they're just under like three feet tall. So they would be a juvenile, uh, even a hominin. And we can look at those that are preserved at G and S and say, do you fall on the same line? Are you weird just because you're a kid and and you, you're actually an afrensis that way? And it turns out, no. The A prints do not fall on that line. They're actually closer to the trajectory of what we see in chimpanzees than they are what we would have expected from an afarensis. So, so that's sort of one already kind of, hmm. And then the other thing we did was we looked at what the actual insides of those prints look like, how you actually make the prints when you your sort of shape of those prints, how do you put them down? And we looked at a bunch of modern humans and said, okay, if we pick any two random humans, which is what we have two really well-preserved Laetoliae, so sort of using that as our example, pull two and compare them to the average human, how, how different are they? What's, what's that distribution of like within a single population, how far apart can you be from one another and still be what we know is the same species? And we can do the same thing with chimpanzees. So here's the distribution of chimps. And obviously they're they're different from humans. So, so two little, maybe little tails of overlapping, but groups. And then we can do the same thing with all the combinations possible of the G prints and the S prints. And it turns out that those two trackways kind of fall within the human distribution, that they aren't all that different in shape from humans. And that's that's pretty typical. We, we know that the afarensis foot skeleton themselves have a lot of things in common with, with modern humans, even though they're quite old. So that sort of makes sense. So what if we look at Laetoli A? And it turns out the A prints are as different from humans as a chimpanzee print is. That doesn't mean they look like a chimp, but they're that that outside of the norm. Sure. So they don't sure. they don't match what we would expect from an afarensis either. And so those kinds of things come together. We know it's a hominin because it's capable of doing some parts of gait that simply couldn't be sustained by something like a chimp or a bear standing upright because of the way that their their hips and knees work. And we know that it doesn't seem to make sense looking at afarensis prints. And sort of the last thing some people suggest, so there is this moment um, where we can have a nice measure of what's called cross-stepping. So the extreme example of that would be like model walking, right? Where you fully cross one leg 
over the midline in front of the other, which is not something people do a lot outside of something like no. walking down the, the catwalk or playing. So why why does that happen? Why might this be going on? And there are some circumstances when it happens. It happens when you're walking on slippery or kind of uneven terrain. You may kind of have to cross over to make that step. But, you know, it's it's a strange moment. And it's still something we kind of don't know exactly what's going on with, with the A-prints for that. But... It's really important because that ability to cross the midline with your feet is not something a chimp or a bear standing upright could do. They simply cannot maintain their balance through that because of the way that their hips and their knees are set up. And so that's a very like common moment to be able to maintain your balance through that. But OK, maybe maybe the reason these look weird is they're an aphorensis who's having this cross-stepping to mess up the way that their prints looked like. And obviously we can't we don't have an aphorensis to say, well, you walk in this mud for me and tell me that. So we use the best models that we have, which is us. So let's have a bunch of humans. We're going to have you walk normally through this mud trackway, see what your footprints look like. And then we're going to have you walk cross-stepping through mud. Does that change your footprints? Does it change them in the same kinds of ways that are the differences between G and A? And, and could that be the explanation? And it turns out, no. So they don't change very much. And the ways that they change human cross-stepping footprints versus their normal do not line up with what makes it different for, for A versus G. So those things together all collectively are say, well, okay, it is a hominin, but it it doesn't seem to match up with the GNS prints, which we believe belong to Afarensis. So that means sort of by default, it has to belong to another hominin species. So I... I'm going to make my career right now by having you on the Science Night podcast tell me what is this other species? Definitively, what is the species? No. The mystery species. I won't. <laughs> because we can't so we sort of we now have we have a cinderella moment right we have we have a shoe and we're looking for the right foot to slide into it and the problem is is as is often the case of folks who do what i do is our fossil record so there are Mm -hmm. a couple species walking around in this time frame in this area of the world that that are possibilities so things like kenyanthropus platyops Australopithecus diremida. We have their cranial dental material. We have parts of their skeletons. We don't have their feet. So we actually can't say for sure which one of those is a good possibility because we don't know what their feet looks like. And we may have other things, things like the Pratelli foot, um, which has a fabulous foot, but doesn't have any cranial dental material. So we actually don't know who that species belongs to. And I will say we do probably, you know, preliminarily that the, the Pratelli foot is a poor matchup with Laetoli A, because of the anatomies that are preserved, we have enough of that foot to know that that foot has a really long fourth digit and that doesn't match up with what we're seeing in terms of the proportions of the Laetoli A print. So sometimes even with the pieces of evidence, you can kind of be like, well, it's probably not that, but we can't tell you like, who does that foot belong to and sort of narrow down the field in that way. So there are, there are pieces lying around, but our puzzle's just not complete enough to have a good answer of like, it's absolutely this species or that um, until we have we connect a few more dots of like what do your feet look like maybe there's other folks in this area as well other species but we just haven't found them yet um which is unsatisfying and i accept that because everyone goes yeah. who is it i want to know and i'm like so do i but I, I we don't know yet and we, we can't know that until we have more fossils there we're delighted actually to have some more fossils on on the trackway itself so that's that's sort of our next step is uh, you know when the world allows for such things is to go back to Laetoli and try and expand that trackway in either direction see if we can pick them up see you know if we have the same individual are they are they still cross-stepping you know is that interesting maybe we can find another individual 
walking with them and see what they're like maybe an adult would be great see what those prints look like give us our own idea of what that trajectory within those individuals is and one day does that kind of slot in neatly with more with our fossil record when that's a little more complete so it is unsatisfying but that's where we're at (laughs) you know it's it's unsatisfying but it just means that the mystery has not been solved yes there's more science to do there are more papers to write. There are more specimens to find. And I'm sure that you're going to be part of the team that Thanks. solves this mystery. <sighs> I don't know. As much as I'm sure about everything. <laughs> I appreciate and your when you do, And when you do, we would love to have you back on this show. Thank you. Thank you. I love coming. Ellie, thank you so much for talking to us. The last thing I want to ask you is how can people follow what you're doing and support your work? Folks can follow along. Um, I have a Twitter that's uh, called Bones on the Go, um, which I put there, you know, the things that I'm working on and and, and stuff that that I'm part of. Um, That's probably the easiest place to go. I also have a, a website you can find um, that's just under my name, Dr. Allison McNutt, uh, that's uh, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Ohio University. And you should be able to, to track me down there from, from Google is probably the easiest way to get to that. Um, and that's got cool pictures if you want to see the little bears wandering through the mud to, to their <laughs> applesauce reward. There's a cool little video there um, if, if that's one thing you want to go check out. Thank you so much to Dr. Ellie McNaught for talking to me. It is always good to reconnect with her. Some great stories that I will definitely not even share on this podcast. That is going to do it for this episode of the Science Night Podcast. If you want to follow me, well, why don't you go over to Twitter? I am at James underscore Reed and the number three. And Brianna, where can everyone find you and support you? So you can find me on Twitter at Brianna Pobiner, all one word. Um, But also you can find the Smithsonian's Human Origins Program at Human Origins on Twitter or the Smithsonian's Human Origins Program on Facebook. And Ryan, where can everyone find you and support what you're doing? You can find me on the GW Anthropology Department webpage. Just search GW Anthropology and check out my articles on what's hot in human origins on the Smithsonian Institution's Human Origins page. And that is humanorigins.si.edu. And we will absolutely have links to all of that on our website at scinite.com. If you want to follow this podcast on Twitter, we're at Science Night and the number one. That is going to do it for another episode of the Science Night podcast. Probably one of the best we're ever going to do. And as a special treat, we are going to be back again next week with another year-end roundup, this time focusing on fusion energy, and our favorite co-host, Dr. Steffi Deem, is going to join us for that. So check back in one week for this special edition on fusion energy, and until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. Um, we're, we're going to phonetics here. Po. Okay. Bin. Er. Got it. And Ryan, not Brian McRae.
Um, right. Yeah. I might leave that in as an inside joke. Just... 